This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 80th episode of the program. Today is February 3rd, and before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the independent progressive media revolution. Today, I want to send a thank you to Patrick Fries, Mikhail Mahoney, Olivia Richards, Antonio Fernandez, Jacqueline Booth, Will Breeley, and John Benoit. So all of these individuals decided to support the show either by signing up to become a member on HumanistReport.com, by signing up to be Patreon patrons, or by sending us a donation via PayPal. So if you too would like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you can visit the links down below in the description box, but so long as you watch, if you like our videos and share our videos, that helps us out tremendously. And if you disable adblock on this channel, you also help the show. So on today's episode, I'll talk about Trump's disastrous second week as president and how he's trying to rewrite history before our very eyes. And he's also trying to destroy the barrier that exists between church and state. I'll also talk about why his Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, should be vigorously opposed by Democrats and progressives, and why Steve Bannon, who is Trump's chief strategist, is actually the one who's calling all the shots in the White House. I'll also discuss how the Republicans want war with Iran. Additionally, I'll talk about the DNC chair race, including Jemu Green's cop-out and Joe Biden's embarrassing endorsement. Also, corporate media poses a threat to our democracy, and Bernie Sanders explains why. Also, Tulsi Gabbard is trying to rein in the big banks. And finally, I'll discuss how our revolution is drafting Nina Turner to run for governor in the state of Ohio. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. We've got a huge show. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. So last week, I characterized Donald Trump's first week as president as a complete disaster. Now, with everything, I mean, there's always an adjustment period. So you know what they say about your first day on the job. The first day is always the hardest, and then it gradually gets better. But in this case, Donald Trump had a pretty rough week. However, there was no improvement during the second week. In fact, I would argue that his second week was more of a disaster than his first week. I mean, it was just a catastrophe. So I'm going to give you a rundown as to why I think Donald Trump's second week went worse than the first. But before I even get to that, I can't not start out by talking about how President Trump completely embarrassed himself at a Black History Month listening session, and he tried to make it about him. Last month, we celebrated the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Jr., whose incredible example is unique in American history. You read all about Dr. Martin Luther King uh, a week ago when uh, somebody said, I took the statue out of my office. And it turned out that that was fake news. I swear to God, Donald Trump is the presidential equivalent of Michael Scott from The Office. Now, he also took a moment to commend the African Americans around the world. We honor the tremendous history of the African-Americans throughout our country, throughout the world, if you really think about it, right? Thank God somebody is finally acknowledging the work that African-Americans in Italy are doing and African-Americans in South Africa are doing. (laughs) 
despite that, there's some really important things that happened during this week, namely the constitutional crisis that he triggered in the second week by trying to issue a Muslim ban from countries that were currently bombing. And this basically led to a complete disaster. We had nationwide protests. So obviously, if you try to implement an unconstitutional Muslim ban unilaterally by executive order, that's going to lead to some backlash. And people uh, within government who refuse to comply, like Sally Yates, well, he just fired. So as it stands now, this case is currently pending. Now, this isn't the only case that President Trump is currently involved with. So according to New York Daily News, President Trump has been sued dozens of times during his first days in the White House for a wide array of reasons, from his alleged unethical business interests to his controversial travel ban on seven Muslim-majority countries. As of Wednesday morning, Trump has been named in more than 50 federal lawsuits, according to court records. Now, to be completely fair to President Trump, it's not unusual for presidents to be named in lawsuits when they first get into office, but by comparison, President Obama was only named in 11 different lawsuits, whereas President Trump is already named in 50 in his first two weeks. That is a lot, and it's because of things that Donald Trump is doing, his unconstitutional Muslim ban. It's because of the plethora of conflicts of interest. Now, Besides this, there's also a lot more bad news for President Trump. He literally has the worst approval rating of any new president since we started keeping track of approval ratings 60 years ago, with just 45% of citizens approving of the job he's doing. Also, there's a substantial impeachment movement that's looming over his head. Now, this movement managed to acquire more than five. 100,000 signatures, which is significant, and 4 in 10 voters now support his impeachment according to public policy polling. Now, in spite of all of this bad news, President Trump is already raising money for his 2020 re-election bid. You are really dumb, for real. Now, the question is, why the hell is he so unpopular, and what the hell is he doing? Well, I mean, besides the unconstitutional Muslim ban and the numerous conflicts of interest, he's proving to be a gigantic hypocrite because he's doing things that he criticized Obama for. So, for example, he implied that Obama shouldn't be taking time off of golf when there's other crises occurring across the country. Meanwhile, he's already planning to take a vacation after just two weeks in office. But I think the fact that he's proving to be a gigantic hypocrite it's, it's not really surprising to most people, and it's also less important. What really is important is the fact that the policies that he's choosing to implement is having a real-world impact uh, that's negative. Now, when it comes to the housing market, Trump's administration decided to stop President Obama's annual insurance premium cut, which was beneficial because it would have decreased monthly payments for thousands of new lower-income borrowers. Total mortgage applications fell 3.2% on a seasonally adjusted basis from the previous week, according to Mortgage Bankers Association. Volume was 18% lower than the same week one year ago. This is called cause and effect. If you make it more difficult for people to afford loans, and if you make them less affordable, then people are less likely to want to buy houses, and this will impact the housing industry and the housing market negatively. Good job, Trump. Now, second of all, he signed an arbitrary executive order that requires two regulations to be rescinded every time a new one is signed into law. And the biggest issue that I have with this is it just applies to all regulations across the board. There's no nuance. So if the Food and Drug Administration, for example, wants to ban the use of a particular ingredient that a new study finds to be harmful, well, then the 
FDA would have to search for two other regulations to cut. But that means that two other necessary regulations will be on the chopping block that might be more harmful. So in other words, this dissuades federal agencies from coming up with new regulations. Now look, I'm a reasonable person. I can probably agree with the fact that there are many regulations that are unnecessary. But you don't treat all regulations the same and you certainly don't treat all regulatory agencies the same. That's irrational. That's stupid. I mean, when it comes to the FDA, I don't care how many regulations are on the book. I care that our food is thoroughly regulated and is safe for us to consume. Regulations just aren't unequivocally bad. I want there to be regulations that ensure that our drinking water is clean. I want there to be regulations on Wall Street so that way they can't gamble with our money and then crash the economy. If you're Donald Trump, though, there's just no room for nuance. So those are some of the harmful domestic policies that he's implemented. But surprisingly, I will give him credit where credit is due. He chose to continue a 2014 executive order by President Obama that bars discrimination against LGBT people that are working for companies with federal contracts. So I think that this is a smart move, although he's doing other things that are harmful to the LGBT community. And I'll talk about that in a different segment. But overall, when you look at all of his domestic policies, besides the TPP and trying to protect LGBT workers that are working for companies with federal contracts, his domestic policies have been a catastrophe thus far, but that's just his domestic policies. Let's talk about his foreign policies. So during a military raid in Yemen, the US managed to kill 14 Al-Qaeda fighters. However, simultaneously, they managed to kill 30 civilians in the process, including 10 women and some children, namely Nora Alalaki. Now, Nora Alalaki's father was assassinated by the CIA under the directive of President Obama. Now, this is problematic because Anwar Alalaki was an American citizen. Now, Anwar's son, Abdurrahman al-Awlaki, who's also Nora's older brother, of course, was killed in a drone strike with his cousin. So between President Obama and President Trump, we've completely wiped out this family. It's heartbreaking. And the reason why this whole military raid was just a complete clusterfuck was because Donald Trump, according to reports, ordered this raid without a sufficient amount of intelligence. You can't do that. You can't take military action without a sufficient amount of intelligence. Now, additionally, when it comes to international policy, Myron Ebel, who was the former EPA advisor to Donald Trump, claims that we will be pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement within days. Now, it's a little bit more difficult than that. Donald Trump can't just unilaterally pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement because we're bound for four years. But what President Trump can do is sign an executive order that states that we are intending to pull out as soon as that four-year period is up. That's a problem. Climate change is a problem. And look, here's the thing about the Paris Climate Agreement. It doesn't go far enough. It's very weak to begin with. It lacks teeth. So, Something is better than nothing, but they're saying we don't want anything. We don't want any any policy, any treaty that could potentially at least ameliorate climate change a little bit. They don't want that. So Donald Trump's second week between the Muslim ban, between his disastrous military raid, between his horrible, the multitude of domestic policies that just backfired immediately, it's been a catastrophe. So if his first week was bad and his second week was worse... Good Lord, let's hope that we get a break in the third week. Please, just go on vacation. I know that that makes him a hypocrite, but the less that Donald Trump is doing at this point, I think the better we'll all be. 
So as you all know, last week, President Trump issued an executive order which bans Syrian refugees from entering the country. It also bars citizens from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States. And these countries are Syria, Sudan, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and Iraq. Now, we're bombing most of these countries currently. So it's a little bit ironic that they're the ones that are seen as a threat when we're not. Now, what's fascinating about this story, you all know about it by now, is that it backfired tremendously in Trump's face. And after it backfired, however, the way that Trump responded to it is very troublesome. Now, what he's trying to do is basically rewrite history before our very eyes. Now, I'll tell you how he's doing that. But first, I want to talk about how it backfired. So as you all know by now, last weekend, when this executive order was issued, it led to nationwide protests at airports across the country as citizens from these countries were detained. And this includes protests in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington State, including Seattle, Dallas, New Jersey, Chicago, San Francisco. Now, thankfully, all of this chaos that ensued as a result of Donald Trump's executive order came to a halt once the federal courts issued this message to Donald Trump. Stop breaking the so thankfully, U.S. District Court Judge Ann Donnelly sided with the ACLU's habeas corpus suit that they brought forward immediately after Donald Trump signed this executive order. And Donnelly states, there is imminent danger that absent the stay of removal, there will be substantial and irreparable injury to refugees, visa holders, and other individuals from nations subject. So after getting shot down by the American judicial system after facing nationwide resistance from protesters, Donald Trump is trying to tell us to not believe our lying eyes. It's not a Muslim ban, but we're totally prepared. It's working out very nicely. You see it at the airports, you see it all over. It's working out very nicely. And we're gonna have a very, very strict ban and we're going to have extreme vetting, which we should have had in this country for many years. There's so many lies in that short 17 second clip that I don't even know where to begin. So first, he says that it's not a Muslim ban. Okay, so if religion isn't a factor, then why are you prioritizing Christian refugees over Muslim ones? I'm just curious. Now also, nobody believes that this isn't a Muslim ban because your friend Rudy Giuliani already spilled the beans. When he first announced it, he said Muslim ban. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. Oops. But I don't want you to be mad at Rudy Giuliani, Trump, because if I'm remembering correctly, you actually ran on a Muslim ban, and it was included in your first campaign ad. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. The politicians can pretend it's something else, but Donald Trump calls it radical Islamic terrorism. That's why he's calling for a temporary shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until we can figure out what's going on. Now, just so we're clear here, that was a direct quote from Donald Trump. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims, Muslims, entering the United States. But it's not a Muslim ban, you guys. Even though I campaigned on doing a Muslim ban and said it repeatedly, this isn't a Muslim ban. And also, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength, according to Donald Trump. Now, second of all, Donald Trump also contends that the Muslim ban is going very nicely. Now, just <laughs> instinctively, I'm inclined to disagree, seeing that your executive order sparked nationwide protests. You had to fire the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, because she refused to comply with this unconstitutional order, which, by the way, is 
a strategy right out of the playbook of many authoritarian dictators. And also, just to really illustrate how nicely this Muslim ban went for Trump, this is what happened. Dozens of passengers were detained once they hit U.S. soil this weekend at various airports, including this Iranian mother's five-year-old son that you see on the left-hand side. She anxiously awaiting his arrival at Washington's Dulles International Airport Saturday night, only to learn that he was one of the travelers detained. And there you see the reunion after hours spent without answers. Quote, it's working out very nicely. Oh yeah? Well, here's another example as to how nicely Donald Trump's Muslim ban worked out. It was a strong shock, he says. We received visas after waiting three years. Then this order comes. The Iraqi branch of Al-Qaeda planted a bomb in his car in 2009. It blew both his legs off and mangled his left hand. They targeted him because he provided the U.S. Marines and Iraqi police with intelligence on the terrorists in his hometown of Fallujah. So, I'm sorry, Donald Trump, it's not working out nicely. Nobody believes that. We are not going to deny our own eyes. We can actually see what's going on. So, it didn't work out nicely. Now, third, he claims that we don't have an extreme vetting process and that we should have had one in place years ago. Again, this is another lie. The United States has been extremely vetting Syrian refugees since we started to admit them into the country. USA Today explains Syrian refugees wait an average of 18 months to 24 months before being admitted to the United States. The 21-step screening process goes through multiple agencies, including the United States High Commissioner for Refugees, the U.S. State Department, the FBI, and the United States Department of Homeland Security. Applicants undergo two and sometimes three interagency security checks to make sure nothing disqualifies them for admission to America. Refugee applicants also undergo a comprehensive medical examination to ensure that they don't have a contagious disease. Refugees continue to be screened after they arrive in the U.S. Within a year, they can apply for a green card. Five years later, they can apply to become naturalized U.S. citizens. The federal government conducts background screening procedures at both steps. In fact, the government has a special program called the Controlled Application Review and Resolution Program that can delay refugees and other applicants for years based on alleged national security concerns. Several immigrants have had to sue the U.S. Immigration Agency to get their cases out of this black hole. So the fact that you continue to claim that we do not do extreme vetting is false. We have one of the most strict vetting programs in the world, hence why the refugees that we've admitted to the country, they've proven to not be a threat. They're hardworking Americans that just wanted to flee from the chaos that was ensuing in their own country. Now, of course, Donald Trump's supporters, they believe everything that he says. They don't care about reality. As long as Donald Trump says it, they're willing to accept it. And they're pushing back with some uh, not dank memes, and they're contending that liberals are hypocrites because when President Obama did an Iraqi refugee ban in 2011, well, we were silent. But now that President Trump is doing a refugee ban, all of a sudden, we're out Outraged, but that's not entirely true. Now, I've never been shy about my opposition towards liberal hypocrisy, but Trump doesn't just receive a get-out-of-jail-free card for doing shitty things that Obama also did, but most importantly, the main problem with this line of thinking is that it's factually untrue. Now, the prominence of these claims, in part, are due to President Trump alleging that President Obama did, in fact, do an Iraqi refugee ban. That's not true. Trump says, my policy is similar to what President Obama did in 2011 when he banned V 
visas for refugees from Iraq for six months. The seven countries named in the executive order are the same countries previously identified by the Obama administration as sources of terror. Now, this is wrong for two reasons. One, President Obama imposed new security checks on Iraqi refugees. And even though it did significantly slow down the admission of them for six months, well, it never stopped. And note that this didn't apply to Iraqi citizens, just refugees. However, Trump just outright tried to ban refugees and citizens. Now, he also claims that he decided to ban citizens from entering these seven countries because President Obama previously declared that they were sources of terror. But Vox clarifies, stating, Trump is referring to an amendment to the State Department's Visa Waiver Program, a long-standing initiative that allows people from certain countries to enter the United States without obtaining a visa first. After the San Bernardino terrorist attacks in December of 2015, the Obama administration and Congress collaborated to change the way the program affected people from seven countries, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. People with passports from these countries hadn't actually been covered in the visa waiver program. The law overwhelmingly privileges Europeans, but someone who was a dual national with citizenship from a covered country, say a French Syrian, could theoretically use her French passport to enter the U.S. with virtually no security. The new rules removed visa waiver privileges for dual nationals, as well as people from a visa waiver country who had recently visited one of the seven nations, like a Brit who had recently traveled to Iraq. So I'm sorry, but President Trump doesn't get to use the Obama did it so I get to do it too card. He doesn't. And furthermore, it doesn't matter if Obama did it too. The fact of the matter is that this is not only just unconstitutional, it's illegal too. The New York Times explains the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 banned all discrimination against immigrants on the basis of national origin, replacing the old prejudice system and giving each country an equal shot at the quotas. In signing the new law, President Lyndon B. Johnson said that the harsh injustice of the national origins quota system had been abolished. Nonetheless, Mr. Trump Trump asserts that he still has the power to discriminate, pointing to a 1952 law that allows the president the ability to suspend the entry of any class of aliens that he finds are detrimental to the interest of the United States. But the president ignores the fact that Congress then restricted this power in 1965, stating plainly that no person could be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. The only exceptions are those provided for by Congress, such as the preference for Cuban asylum seekers. So let's be very clear here. Donald Trump's Muslim ban, and let's call it what it is, it's a Muslim ban, is illegal and it's unconstitutional. Yet despite this obvious fact, he still wants to do it. Someone who claimed to be the law and order candidate wants to break the law, brazenly so. And don't take my word for it, this is what he said. We have to bring back law and order. Great, let's start with you, Trump. You can start by reinstating Attorney General Sally Yates since you fired her specifically because she refused to comply with your executive order, which broke the law. And second, you can resign because you are now violating the law, specifically the emoluments clause of the Constitution, since you're only choosing to enforce the Muslim ban against countries that have launched zero fatal attacks on us in the last 40 years. The countries that you didn't ban that did attack us, well, you don't want to ban them from entering because you don't want that to impede on the business interests that you have with countries like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and of course, that lovely golf course that you're building in Dubai. So the bottom line is that if President Trump believes what he said, which was this, we have to bring back law and order, then he needs to take this piece of advice. Stop breaking the law, asshole! 
Since the Republican Party has successfully stolen President Obama's Supreme Court nomination away from him after the sudden death of Antonin Scalia, Donald Trump is now doing what President Obama should have been able to do. Today, I am keeping another promise to the American people by nominating Judge Neil Gorsuch of the United States Supreme Court to be of the United States Supreme Court. Now, Neil Gorsuch is a dangerous nominee and we should vigorously oppose him. And I'm going to tell you why we should vigorously oppose him. But for now, here's everything you need to know about Neil Gorsuch. The towering judges that have served in this particular seat of the Supreme Court, including Anand Scalia and Robert Jackson, are much in my mind at this moment. Justice Scalia was a lion of the law. Justice Scalia was a lion. Well, you know, I agree with you if by lion you mean a bigoted hypocrite, but I'm not going to dance on Justice Scalia's grave, but I can acknowledge objectively that he was a right-wing extremist. But it makes me feel uncomfortable knowing that Neil Gorsuch looks up to Antonin Scalia and that they were friends. But let me give you some more background on Gorsuch, and I'll tell you why he is not a good choice for progressives, and he's even worse than a centrist coward like Merrick Garland. So he's advocated against physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. So in other words, he doesn't believe that if you're dying and you're in pain and you only have a couple of weeks left to live, that you don't get to decide when you go. You don't get to decide that you get to die with your family by your side. And this is someone who claims to be a small government conservative. Now, he's also never stated his position on Roe v. Wade, but he's given us every indication that he's vocally opposed to abortion. Now, he's also supported the disastrous Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision, which allows religious businesses to not include contraception in the list of healthcare they provide. Now, he also also believes that felons should be allowed to own firearms. And according to The Intercept, he also believes that police officers should be protected by a doctrine known as qualified immunity. So when a law enforcement officer is unsure about the legality of their actions, well, they should be immune from that. Now, additionally, quote, Gorsuch's rulings have also chipped away at constitutional protections from warrantless searches. He has repeatedly ruled in favor of police searching vehicles without a warrant after routine traffic stops. Gorsuch also ruled in a case last year that if police track your car with a GPS device for weeks without going to a judge, the evidence is still admissible at trial as long as the police have an objectively reasonable good faith belief that what they are doing is legal. Now, when it comes to Citizens United and our campaign finance system that basically allows for legalized bribery, Demos explains that Judge Gorsuch's record on money and politics, while sparse, raises significant concerns. However, what we do know is that Judge Gorsuch went out of his way to write a concurring opinion suggesting that making a political contribution is a fundamental right that ought to be afforded to the highest form of constitutional protection, which is known as strict scrutiny review. So although we don't know too much about Neil Gorsuch at this point, we do know that there's a lot of really big red flags, and the fact that he thinks that political contributions, that legalized bribery, is a fundamental right that should be evaluated by the courts with the highest level of scrutiny is very terrifying. So based on the issues alone, we should oppose Neil Gorsuch because I don't agree with his judicial philosophy. Now, furthermore, we should also oppose him just based on the principle. After obstructing President Obama's nominee for a year, the Republican Party should not be rewarded for blocking 
President Obama from fulfilling his constitutional duty. However, President Trump warns that if Democrats do try to do what Republicans did, well, he's pretty much going to throw a temper tantrum. If we end up with the same gridlock that they've had in Washington for the last longer than eight years, in all fairness to President Obama, a lot longer than eight years. But if we end up with that gridlock, I would say, if you can, Mitch, go nuclear, because that would be an absolute uh, shame. So according to President Trump, when the Republican Party creates gridlock in Washington, it's perfectly fine. However, if the Democratic Party creates gridlock, well, then we're going to have a problem. Then we're going to go nuclear. Well, I say bring it on. However, I don't know if Democrats are as inclined as I am to actually stand up and fight. And so far, it's a mixed bag. So when it comes to which Democrats are willing to stand up and fight, so far we know that Elizabeth Warren is pledging to fight and she called Neil Gorsuch a reward to powerful interests. Also, Bernie Sanders says that Neil Gorsuch is going to have to explain his hostility to women's rights, support of corporations over workers, and opposition to campaign finance reform. And Senator Jeff Merkley is leading the cause, basically, to filibuster the appointment of Neil Gorsuch. And he says that he's going to do everything in his power to do that. We must not forget this. This is not a normal consideration. This is a seat that was stolen from the former president, Obama. That's never been done in U.S. history before. To let this become normal just invites a complete partisan polarization of the court from here to eternity. Uh, at what point does a majority say in the future, we will not let someone make a nomination two years into their four years, or three years into their four years, or their entire four years? So I made it clear that I was going to insist on a 60-vote standard and that I would vote against closing debate. So insisting on 60 votes is the way you, you start what we refer to as a filibuster. And then the question is, uh, are there going to be enough votes to shut it down? And of course, my hope is, is that there won't be. So that's what I want to hear. Now, when it comes to someone like Joe Manchin, for example, well, what does he think about Republicans obstructing the nomination of Merrick Garland? I was embarrassed by how Mitch McConnell led the Republicans not to even be decent and considerate enough to even talk to the gentleman, let alone vote for him. They had enough votes to vote him down, I'm sure. But they should have at least gone through the process. Well, that's perfect. We finally agree on something, Manchin. So are you then going to obstruct Gorsuch in the same way that Republicans obstructed Merrick Garland? What are you going to do? I'm anxious to sit and talk to him. I understand he has impeccable, basically, credentials. So, uh, yeah, he's going to cave. And look, this isn't too surprising considering Joe Manchin is pretty much Democrat in name only. He's more conservative. I don't see why he hasn't actually switched parties yet. And furthermore, this is someone who literally voted yes to confirm the ExxonMobil CEO as our next Secretary of State. He voted yes on Rex Tillerson. So this isn't surprising. But look, in the end, Democrats have got to fight. We've got to fight. Neil Gorsuch based on policy, and we've also got to fight Neil Gorsuch based on principle. Republicans do not get to lock up a Supreme Court nominee and refuse to even hear out Merrick Garland. And look, this is coming from someone who despises Merrick Garland and these centrist corporatist Democrats. I don't like Merrick Garland, but the fact remains that President Obama should have been the one to appoint the Supreme Court justice, and I'd much rather prefer a centrist coward over a right-wing extremist like Neil Gorsuch. So, Democrats need to fight, but I don't think it's going to really happen. I think they're going to cower in fear, and look, what little power they have. I know that it's not completely guaranteed that they can block Neil Gorsuch, but I think that if they don't try, we're going to notice it, and we're going to call them out, and they will be primaried. So, Democrats, 
Fight. The Republican Party has made it no secret that they've been wanting to bomb Iran for a really, really long time. In fact, I think they could barely contain themselves from salivating over the thought of it. And this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, it goes back to even John McCain, when during his 2008 campaign, he literally joked about bombing Iran. That old Beach Boy song, Bomb Iran. <laughs> bomb, 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 bomb. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but nothing puts me more at ease than hearing our politicians joke about bombing a country that hasn't attacked us. But I mean, it didn't just start with John McCain. This goes back to the Bush era. But now that Republicans are in full control of government, they're now furiously beating the war drums against Iran. President Trump has severely criticized the various agreements reached between Iran and the Obama administration, as well as the United Nations, as being weak and ineffective. Instead of being thankful to the United States in these agreements, Iran is now feeling emboldened. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. The question is, what the hell did Iran do to make the United States so pissed off? Well, according to White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, this is what they did. Iran um, has in violated the joint resolution that Iran's additional hostile actions that it took against our Navy vessel are ones that we are very clear is, are not going to sit by and take. Uh, I think that we will have further updates for you on those additional actions, but clearly we wanted to make sure that Iran understood that they are on notice. This is not going unresponded to. So what he's saying here is very serious. If Iran did in fact attack a U.S. Navy vessel, that's an act of war. We have grounds to actually invade them because of this, according to U.S. military doctrine. So this is really serious if it's true. The problem is that it's not true. Sean Spicer was wrong. Iran did not attack a United States Navy vessel. Now, here's the correction that Spicer issued. Yes. Sorry, thank you. Sorry, yes. Now, if you had no idea what he said there, you're not alone. So according to The Intercept, they explained that Major Garrett of CBS News quietly corrected him, saying a Saudi vessel, and Spicer then responded almost inaudibly, sorry, thank you, yes, a Saudi vessel. Yes, that's right. Yes. A Saudi vessel. Sorry, thank you. Saudi vessel. Yes. So that obviously was not a sufficient correction because nobody can understand what the hell he was saying. And now anyone who watched that is going to get the impression that Iran literally attacked a U.S. Navy vessel. That's not true. Now, the question is, what did Iran actually do? Well, they recently confirmed that they conducted a test of a ballistic missile. Now, Trump also threatened them on Twitter and claimed that Iran was put on notice. Now, this isn't the first time that Iran has launched a ballistic missile. Uh, actually, back in March of 2016, when Vice President Biden visited Israel, they basically threw a temper tantrum and tested ballistic missiles with a message on them that said Israel must be wiped out. Now, obviously, this is one of the dumbest things the Iranian government can possibly do because Israel would wipe them out in a second. And Israel also has the weight of the United States behind them. And also, when you have a Republican administration that is looking for any reason to attack you and invade you, you don't do stupid things like this. But we all know that Iran isn't going to wipe out Israel because Israel is stronger. Now, the most important takeaway, however, is that this missile test does not justify the United States invading or bombing Iran. And I think that just like the Iranian people, uh, the American people are also cringing at the actions of our idiotic, reckless leaders. Because Many people don't know this, but the Iranian people, they're much more secular than their theocratic government. So they don't like when their government 
talk shit about Israel and talk shit about the United States because that clearly makes them vulnerable. And we don't like when uh, Republicans talk about invading Iran because that makes us more vulnerable. It makes the international community view us as a threat that we've proven to be time and again. So this whole situation is problematic and we have the Iranian citizens and American citizens caught in the middle. We don't want war, but our governments are hellbent on starting shit with each other. It's frustrating. Now, this is terrifying news because the Republican Party, they're not reasonable, they're reactionary, and they've been looking for any justification to invade Iran. And to illustrate this, literally on the first day of the 115th session of Congress, Republicans already introduced a bill called the Authorization of Use of Force Against Iran Resolution, which authorizes President Trump to unilaterally, quote, use armed forces of the United States as the president determines necessary and appropriate in order to achieve the goal of preventing Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. Now, this justification for war with Iran is already pretty shaky because the United States intelligence community says that there's no evidence that Iran is, in fact, building a nuclear bomb or that they even want to build a nuclear bomb. However, since they tested this ballistic missile, well, now the Republicans have a reason to invade Iran. We are officially putting Iran on notice. But I mean, come on, liberals, we're all just overreacting here because the Republican Party assures us that they don't actually want to put boots on the ground in Iran or invade Iran. That would be insane, especially after uh, the catastrophe that was the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So here's what they actually want to do in Iran. I'll let uh, Congressman Duncan Hunter explain. Do you think war with Iran is inevitable? I sure as hell hope not. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, I, I think a, a ground war in Iran with American boots on the ground uh, would, would be a horrible thing. And I think people like to toss, toss around the fact that we have to stop them in some way from gaining this nuclear capability. I don't think it's inevitable, but I think if you have to hit Iran, you don't put boots on the ground. You do it with tactical nuclear devices, and, and you set them back a decade or, or two or three. <laughs> You do it with tactical nuclear devices, and, and you set them back a decade, or or two or three. But that was back in 2013. Here's what we can expect now. You're going to see a much stronger stance towards Iran. And here's the thing, Neil. When you're weak against a country like Iran, that really whets their appetite for even more belligerent behavior. So I think a stronger stance will end up putting Iran back in the box that they belong in. Now, Deputy Secretary of State John Bolton states that this ballistic missile tests gives the United States a justification to pull out of the Iranian nuclear deal. Pentagon sources are saying that the failure of the test came at the re-entry stage. Well, you know, missiles that launch communications and, and uh, weather satellites don't have re-entry to worry about. What you have re-entry to worry about is a nuclear weapon under a nose cone. So the fact they were testing at the re-entry level shows exactly what the Iranian missile program is for. It's to deliver nuclear weapons. This deal is a sham. It's a danger to the United States, to Israel, to our Arab friends in the Middle East. The sooner we get rid of it, the better. So, I mean, let's be clear here. John Bolton advocated as recently as November that he wanted a regime change in Iran, saying that regime change would eliminate a principal threat and would be the only long-term solution and that the people of Iran would long for a new regime. And he lies about the Iran nuclear deal like many Republicans that claim it emboldens Iran and allows them to produce a nuclear weapon. But in actuality, it's effectively a peace deal. It was an alternative to war with Iran, which is why they hate it, because they want to go to war with Iran. So here's the bottom line and why we should be worried. 
So Michael Flynn is the national security advisor to the White House, and those that work with him are worried that he can unilaterally put us on a war with Iran, and he has virtually unchecked power in Trump's administration, and he believes that Iran is the United States' number one enemy, and Donald Trump's administration won't rule out the use of military force in Iran. So to recap, we have a party in power that's saber-rattled against Iran for decades. Uh, we have a presidential administration that's stacked with lunatics, uh, and we have many people within Trump's administration that has directly stated that they would like to invade Iran at some point or time. Uh, this is pretty scary. And also, let's not forget that there's a bill working its way through Congress that would allow Donald Trump to unilaterally use military force against Iran. These are all very, very big flags. So we need to stay vigilant. We need to be very cognizant of what the Republicans are doing and be mindful of the fact that these little actions right now, they're all moving us closer to war with Iran because they've been looking for any reason, like I said, to invade Iran. And this missile test, which was incredibly idiotic by Iran, this may be what allows them to finally get what they want. They want to invade Iran. This is really scary. This is really scary because obviously if they invade Iran, potentially millions of people would die, Iranian citizens, United States troops. This can never come to fruition. War with Iran would be unfathomable. It can't happen. Pay attention to what they're doing because this is very troubling. So Steve Bannon is the former president of the pro-Trump propaganda outlet Breitbart News. He's also a longtime white supremacist, and he is the chief strategist to Donald Trump. And also, let's be honest, he's batshit insane. And this is an individual that recently consolidated his power, and he's the one that's actually calling all the shots in Donald Trump's administration. Steve Bannon is the White House chief strategist. But even that title may not do justice to his influence in the West Wing. He's driving decisions on every piece of President Trump's agenda, domestic and foreign, including the president's immigration order and travel ban that sparked a global backlash. But it's his elevation to a permanent spot on the National Security Council that is now outraging even many Republicans, who question why he has a seat alongside the Secretary of State and Defense Secretary in the inner sanctum of national security. The President said in a weekend memo, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence will no longer have a standing seat on the group known as the Principals Committee. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who has served eight presidents, said it was an unprecedented move. I think uh, pushing them out of the National Security Council meetings, except when their specific uh, issues are at stake, is a big mistake. I think that they both bring a perspective and, and judgment and experience to bear that every president, whether they like it or not, finds useful. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer brushed aside criticism as utter nonsense. Now, we don't want Steve Bannon to be on the National Security Council because we don't want him to influence the decisions of people on the National Security Council. And furthermore, he has no experience. Running a propaganda news website is not experience, so he's not qualified to even be a chief strategist, let alone someone who serves on the National Security Council. And what's scary is that we're seeing the impact that he's actually having on President Trump, even right down to the rhetoric. So, for example, uh, 
Steve Bannon recently called news and media the opposition party, and then we had Trump echo that same exact sentiment. And also, uh, it's widely believed that Bannon is actually the one that pushed Trump to sign the Muslim ban. So as The Guardian concisely puts it, Bannon is not the president's servant. The president is his tool. Now, you can also make the case that besides his role on the National Security Council just being completely problematic and troubling, it's also illegal. Slate explains that according to Title 50 of the U.S. Code, Section 3021, which established the National Security Council, it shall be composed of the president, the vice president, the secretaries of state, defense, and energy, and the secretaries and undersecretaries of other executive departments and of the military departments when appointed by the president by and with the advice and consent of the state to serve at his pleasure. As the president's chief political strategist, Bannon is not a secretary or undersecretary of any department. Now, when you hear Steve Bannon speak, I think people are inclined to believe him because he's relatively articulate. But I mean, don't be fooled. This guy is a lunatic. So, for example, he stated that he believes war with China is inevitable in the coming years. We're going to war in the South China Sea. I was a sailor there, a naval officer. We're going to war in the South China Sea in five to ten years, aren't we? There's no doubt about it. They're, 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 built, they're taking those sandbars and making basically stationary aircraft carriers and putting missiles in those. They come here to the United States and in front of our face, and you understand how much important face is, say it's an ancient territorial sea. That's a throw down, is it not, sir? Absolutely. Also, conservatives like to maintain that they're not xenophobic because they're not against legal immigration. They're against illegal immigration. Well, Steve Bannon just comes out and says it. He's against legal immigration as well. Vox explains, isn't the beating heart of this problem, the real beating heart of it, of what we got to get sorted here, not illegal immigration? Bannon asked Miller. As horrific as that is, and it's horrific, don't we have a problem? We've looked the other way on this legal immigration that's kind of overwhelmed the country. So the bottom line is that Steve Bannon shouldn't be anywhere near the White House. He shouldn't be anywhere near the National Security Council. He's a complete lunatic. And he, the fact that he's in the White House is very scary. Again, I want to remind you, this is a guy who did not want his children to go to a particular school because they didn't. he didn't want them to be exposed to Jewish children. He's very scary. He's fascistic and he has nationalistic policies that are dangerous. So we have to vigorously oppose uh, what he's doing and how he's calling all the shots. And thankfully, Democrats are proposing a bill that has no chance of passing. But nonetheless, they're bringing attention to it and they're trying to withdraw Bannon from the National Security Council. So I'm telling you guys about Steve Bannon because I want you to be vigilant and I want you to put pressure on him. Now, the thing that's weird is that if you tweet at Steve Bannon or try to call him out, he doesn't care, and many reports indicate that he thrives on controversy. So this is really frustrating because you have this guy who's a lunatic who is advising another lunatic but who is arguably less of a lunatic than Bannon, and, and he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be there. He's illegitimate, and the fact that he is in a place of a pretty, uh, a pretty powerful position, uh, it's scary. At the National Prayer Breakfast, President Trump vowed to take the country down an extremely dangerous path and said that he is going to totally destroy the barrier that separates church and state. Let's watch. Among those freedoms is the right to worship according to our own beliefs. That is why I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear of retribution. I will do that, remember. 
Freedom of religion is a sacred right, but it also a right under threat all around us. And the world is under serious, serious threat in so many different ways. And I've never seen it so much and so openly as since I took the position of president. The world is in trouble. But we're going to straighten it out. Now, religious liberty in the United States is not under threat with respect to Christianity because the overwhelming majority of the country identifies as Christian. But what is under attack is this really important doctrine that separates church and state. In fact, it's fundamental to who we are as a nation and a way that we can maintain our democracy as it stands and separate and keep the church and state separate is by protecting the Johnson Amendment. Now, what is the Johnson Amendment? NBC News explains the Johnson Amendment is supposed to stop leaders of houses of worship from using their pulpit to campaign for certain politicians. In a broader sense, it affects 501c3 tax-exempt organizations, which includes not only religious institutions, but charities and universities, and says they can't participate in or wield an influence in political campaigns. Now, if churches violate this prohibition, well then their tax-exempt status would be revoked. Now, what Trump wants to do, and in the absence of the Johnson Amendment, well, this would allow churches, mostly mega church pastors, they'd be able to lobby politicians and bribe politicians. So, I mean, you know how large multinational corporations are able to bribe our politicians and turn them into puppets? Well, this is what they want churches to be able to do. They want churches, again, mostly mega church pastors, to be able to bribe politicians and get them to do their bidding. Not happening. We already have corruption when it comes to multinational corporations. I don't want corruption and legalized bribery when it comes to churches as well, because that would set us down a very dangerous path where the United States slowly and slowly becomes a theocracy. No thank you. Now, the Johnson Amendment has basically been under attack since it passed in 1954, and for Donald Trump to override it, would be a very dangerous thing. It would set a dangerous precedent. But this isn't the only way uh, that Donald Trump is trying to move us towards a theocracy. So the Independent explains, the Donald Trump administration is preparing to enshrine specific religious beliefs in executive policy, including that premarital sex is wrong, that marriage is or should be recognized as between a man and a woman, that life begins at conception, and that the words male and female refer to immutable biological sex assigned at birth. Yeah, you heard that right. President Grabham by the pussy, who was divorced multiple times, wants to violate violate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause by enshrining religion in the executive branch's policy. Big leak. How about this, President Trump? Before you declare something immoral, why don't you look in the fucking mirror? Because someone who brags about sexual assault and who's had many women come out and say that you sexually assaulted them, you have no right to talk. Now, the nation actually obtained a draft of this executive order, and it gets worse than that. The draft order seeks to create wholesale exemptions for people and organizations who claim religious or moral objections to same-sex marriage, premarital sex, abortion, and trans identity. And it seeks to curtail women's access to contraception and abortion through the Affordable Care Act. Language in the draft document specifically protects the tax-exempt status of any organization that 
that believes, speaks, or acts, or declines to act in accordance with the belief that marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman. Sexual relations are properly reserved for such a marriage. Male and female and their equivalents refer to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy, physiology, or genetics at or before birth, and that human life begins at conception and merits protection at all stages of life. The breadth of the draft order, which legal experts described as sweeping and staggering, may exceed the authority of the executive branch if enacted. So he's trying to make it legal for religious organizations or companies that have religious people on their board or religious CEOs to discriminate against LGBT people and discriminate against transgender people and discriminate against women and curtail their access to contraception. Donald Trump is trying to bring us back to the 1950s, to the Leave it to Beaver era. Well, I've got news for you, Donald Trump. We're not going back. It's 2017, and it's time that you and your Republican friends stop trying to push for a theocracy in the United States. It's time that we all acknowledge something that is going to be a pretty hard pill to swallow. Uh, God's not real. And just like we were forced at one point in life to believe, uh, to acknowledge that Santa is not real and the tooth fairy isn't real, well, it's time to acknowledge the harsh truth that God is not real. God doesn't give a shit about you and what you're doing in your bedroom. If God did exist, he'd probably care more about the Syrian refugee crisis. I think he'd probably care more about you sexually assaulting women. He'd probably care about the wars where little children are being killed. I don't think he gives a fuck about who people are choosing to have sex with and the contraception that they're using. That's just me. Uh, but let's all, let's be real. God does not exist. Grow up. It's time to move on. Uh, it's time to stop trying to move the United States towards a theocracy. We don't base policy on your fairy tale. We base policy on facts and empirical reality. So President Trump can try to destroy the Johnson Amendment. He could try to move us closer uh, towards Iran and Saudi Arabia, just like their theocracies. But guess what? You're going to be vigorously opposed because religion is getting less and less popular with younger generations. We're not going to allow this theocracy or push for theocracy to continue. When it comes to the Republican thugs in Congress, they've demonstrated time and again that they don't just not care about the environment because that would be problematic in and of itself, but they actually hold contempt in their hearts for the environment because every single time they gain power, anytime they gain control of all three branches of government, they take steps to actually harm the environment at the behest of their corporate funders. Now, recently, they have basically waged war on the environment, and they're starting by trying to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency. So the Huffington Post explains, Representative Matt Gates has drafted a bill to completely abolish the Environmental Protection Agency, according to an email obtained by the Huffington Post. The freshman congressman sent the email on Tuesday morning to lawmakers who might co-sponsor the legislation, which would shutter the EPA by the end of next year. Our small businesses cannot afford to cover the costs associated with compliance, too often leading to closed doors and unemployed Americans, Gates wrote. It is time to take back our legislative power from the EPA and abolish it permanently. What really annoys me about this is that these Republican thugs love to curtail environmental protections, and they claim to be doing it under the guise of protecting small businesses. But when they are talking about small businesses, really they're talking about the biggest businesses in the world, the oil and gas companies uh, like ExxonMobil, who have a vested interest, who have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to be profitable. And part of that profitability comes with them destroying 
the planet. And furthermore, even if they were genuinely concerned about small businesses, which they're not, just big businesses who give them financial contributions, uh, wouldn't you think that those small businesses would benefit from having a planet that, I don't know, is habitable? Because if you don't have a planet that's habitable, if you have a planet that's destroyed... Uh, then you can't have any business, you can't have an economy. But that's not all. These Republican thugs are also doing more things to terrorize the planet. The House of Representatives is moving to allow drilling on more than 40 national parks across the country, and oil companies would be able to drill with almost no regulatory oversight, and the National Park Service would have virtually no control over them. Now, additionally, earlier this week, lawmakers in both houses announced bills to block the stream protection rule, an update to regulations that the Department of Interior finalized toward the end of President Barack Obama's tenure. The update overhauled requirements for coal mining operations in order to avoid mining practices that permanently pollute streams, destroy drinking water sources, increase flood risk, and threaten forests. And finally, the Republican Party has given the oil and gas industry a tremendous amount of power recently. Vox explains that using the little-known Congressional Review Act, the House GOP voted on Wednesday to kill an Obama-era regulation that would require publicly traded oil, gas, and mining companies to disclose any payments that they made to foreign governments, including taxes and royalties. So they are wanting to abolish the one governmental agency that already doesn't have enough power. They just want to completely abolish it. They want to make sure uh, that our drinking water is polluted. They want to make sure that our national parks are destroyed and that uh, these greedy companies can extract more oil from them. And they've already voted to confirm the CEO of ExxonMobil as our Secretary of State. So, I mean, look, why don't we just cut out the middleman, just leave Congress and allow the oil and gas companies and the CEOs and all their workers to just work for Congress, just run Congress and make bills uh, and pass bills through Congress, because that's what the Republican scumbags in Congress are actually trying to do. They want to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. They want to do things to actively destroy the environment. They want to push through pipelines that burst and uh, destroy the environment and threaten our clean drinking water. I'm talking about DAPL. I'm talking about the Keystone XL pipeline. They're reprehensible. They are reprehensible. So what we need, we need a nationwide resistance that is severe, that's so overwhelming that these Republican scumbags actually step down and resign from their chairs. When it comes to the DNC chair race, President Obama all but endorsed his former Labor Secretary Tom Perez, and this is because it's really evident that President Obama wasn't too kind to the idea of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party taking over. Now, another really big-name Democrat decided to throw their weight behind a candidate. That person is Joe Biden. Now, before I tell you who he endorsed, uh, I will say that out of all the DNC chair candidates, the only one that I'm willing to support, even though I'm disappointed with all of them, hands down, it's Keith Ellison. He's the best choice because even though he's proven to be a fallen line Democrat, he's more sensible than all the other DNC chair candidates. And Bernie Sanders believes in him, and I believe in Bernie. Now, furthermore, it's time that the Clinton wing of the party, which is literally every other DNC chair candidate, step aside and allow someone that's at least marginally more progressive to have a say. So regardless if the Democratic Party establishment wants to admit it or not, the DNC 
chair race has become a proxy war between the Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders wings of the party. So with Joe Biden knowing that we desperately need to reform the Democratic Party after losing to the most historically unfavored presidential candidate in American history, uh, is he going to be brave and go against someone who was the labor secretary of his own administration uh, and endorse Keith Ellison, who would take the party in a better direction than someone like Tom Perez, who's a coward? Uh, no, he endorsed Tom Perez. Surprise, surprise. So The Hill explains that uh, Joe Biden lauded Perez as a man of integrity and vision, and he knows what it means to be a Democrat, that we are a party that fights for economic fairness for working families and believes that everyone is entitled to be treated with dignity, regardless of who they are, where they come from, or who they love, Biden said of Perez in a statement. We have a lot of good people vying for this important job, but I do think for this moment and in this time, Tom Perez is our best bet to help bring the party back. I've watched him work. I think I know his heart. That's why I endorse him as the next chairman of the DNC. So that was really telling there. Uh, Joe Biden likes Tom Perez because he knows what it means to be a Democrat. Uh, I would agree with that statement. Tom Perez certainly knows what it means to be a Democrat. What it means now to be a Democrat is you accept large contributions from super PACs and multinational corporations, and then you turn around and do their bidding. And it also means that you cower in fear anytime the Republicans try to challenge you, or also you just run away from reporters whenever you're asked a tough question. And most importantly, it means that you toe the party line no matter what. So, uh, you know, this is really frustrating because Joe Biden is someone who, even though he's an establishment figure, I think that deep down he knows that the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and Bernie Sanders, uh, that was where the heart and soul of the Democratic Party lied. So, you know, it, this is really frustrating and demoralizing to me as a progressive. Now, Keith Ellison basically just brushed off this endorsement and said, uh, look, I think we can all agree that the DNC chair must be the choice of the rank-and-file Democratic Party members across the nation. Now, this is presumably in response to Joe Biden's meaningless comment that Perez knows what it means to be a Democrat. Now, thankfully, Bernie Sanders actually called Joe Biden out. So, according to The Hill, Sanders said in a statement that in terms of the next DNC chair, the question is simple. Do we stay with with a failed status quo approach or do we go forward with the fundamental restructuring of the Democratic Party? Sanders, who endorsed Ellison for chair early on and his campaign for him, went further in criticizing the party's failed status quo approach. I say, we go forward and create a grassroots party which speaks for working people and is prepared to stand up to the top 1%. That's why we have to support Keith Ellison, Sanders said. So I like that. Bernie Sanders called uh, Joe Biden out on his bullshit. If you go with Tom Perez, which, you know, it really seems like the DNC will go in that direction, although we don't know, you're going with the failed status quo approach. Make no mistake about it. Tom Perez is as establishment, as corporatist, uh, as status quo as you can possibly be. And as a labor secretary, he went against labor unions who he was supposed to defend, and he pushed for the TPP when almost every single union was against it. It's a joke. How do you go against unions as a labor secretary and then expect to represent the party that purports to be the party of the people? It's ridiculous. Now, one way that uh, I know that Joe Biden's comment is bullshit and why he should have endorsed Keith Ellison over Tom Perez is because people who really are promoted within the Democratic Party, people who are elevated to higher leadership roles, well, it's mostly contingent on their ability to raise money from people. And 
Keith Ellison has outraised Tom Perez, but in a good way. Ellison's campaign said it has received more than 24,000 contributions, with 98% coming from donations of $200 or less. Senator Bernie Sanders has campaigned for Ellison, and small-dollar donations were a hallmark of his insurgent primary campaign. Now, to be fair to Tom Perez... He's also raising grassroots money, but only 73% of his contributions are less than $200, meaning that he's accepting larger contributions from the industry. And this is really scary to the Democratic Party establishment. They don't want uh, the Democratic Party to be funded by grassroots methods because they're in bed with these corporations. They don't just get campaign contributions from them and lobbied by these multinational corporations and super PACs. They actually get jobs with these uh, with the lobbying firms of these companies. Look at Barney Frank. Look at Howard Dean, who became a lobbyist when he was formerly a progressive. So, I mean, they don't want to represent the people, and Biden knows that. And his endorsement I think it's a cowardly endorsement. So, you know what? It doesn't even matter. Go ahead and make him the DNC chair already like you're inevitably going to do. Because if you do, uh, you know, we're going to take over the party anyway. Justice Democrats will be primarying every single corporatist Democrat and we're taking over. So it doesn't matter. Make Tom Perez the DNC chair like you desperately want to do. But you will face resistance and the party will continue to be divided. So I've repeatedly vocalized my disappointment with all of the DNC chair candidates because there's not a single one of them that are willing to acknowledge how unfair the 2016 Democratic primary was to Bernie Sanders. The DNC literally rigged the rules against Bernie Sanders and all of Hillary Clinton's opponents to give her an unfair advantage. And since the WikiLeaks release of the DNC's emails, we know that they were actively trying to undermine Bernie Sanders and sabotage his campaign. So I want them to acknowledge this and apologize for it, because if they're aware of it, then I think that will decrease the likelihood that they're going to do it again. And as a DNC chair, you have to admit that you screwed over voters so that way we can go from there and repair that relationship, but none of them want to address it. And I've been desperately looking for someone to ask them this question. How do you talk to people like Bernie Sanders supporters who the DNC screwed over? So I was really excited to see that Fox News had an interview with Jemu Green, who is currently a DNC chair candidate. Uh, and throughout the entire interview, they were circling around and alluding to the bias that was prevalent in, a, in the 2016 primaries. And you could tell it really made Jemu Green pretty uncomfortable. Interim DNC chair Donna Brazile has been at the reins since Debbie Wasserman Schultz, there you see on the right, was forced to resign last summer. Now there's a growing list of candidates vying to succeed Brazil and get the party back on track. Among them, Jammu Green. Knowing what's happening now with the current woman in that position, because she's had some issues, maybe gave a debate question or so to the candidate before the debate last fall while she was working at CNN. The woman previous kept Bernie down. Bernie Sanders down. So, I mean, these, this is a tough position to walk into now. Why do you want this job? So clearly the host was saying things that Jemu Green did not want to hear. Uh, and, you know, she talked about how Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to resign. But I mean, I wanted her to just cut to the chase and ask the question. And thankfully, she actually asked the question. How do you talk to those people who supported Bernie Sanders who feel like they were shut down and shut up by the former DNC chair and you're taking that job? Now, that was a clear and concise way to word the question, and I loved it. It forced Jammu to answer. But here's what Jammu had to say. Well, I think certainly the actions of the Trump administration 
are going to move us really close to unity because there is no one. I was at JFK last night. There were people who voted for Donald Trump who were protesting. There were people who voted for Bernie Sanders, and there were Hillary Clinton supporters, and there were people so equal who were protesting. disenfranchised and have given up on politics. These policies, these decisions are bringing Americans together, and if the Democratic Party is not the home for this resistance, then we will miss out on this opportunity. Wow. Uh I don't know what to say about that. That was just a beautiful dodge. That was as artful as Neo from The Matrix. So in response to the question, what would you say to Bernie Sanders supporters that felt shut out, you immediately pivoted to the actions of Donald Trump. I don't care about Donald Trump right now. I want to talk about the actions of the DNC. And I mean, during the election, we were told that Donald Trump would be the ultimate political mobilizer and that liberals would be rushing to the polls to vote against him. That didn't happen. And now she's telling us that Donald Trump will be the ultimate political uniter and he's going to unite the Democratic Party because we're all united against him. That's not going to happen either. Wrong answer. I want you to stop dodging the question and I want you to actually address the feelings of Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives and even many Hillary Clinton supporters who I've talked to who were absolutely embarrassed at the actions of their Democratic Party, at the way they were treated, at the way they were shut out. But you don't want to talk about that. You only want to talk about Donald Trump. It's an embarrassment. Now, the good news is that Jemu Green is not oblivious to the criticism that she's received from progressives because she actually addressed Jenk Uger and Anna at TYT because they called her out and she was offended that Jenk Uger wasn't satisfied satisfied with her unwillingness to address the divide in the party. And here's what she had to say. The idea that this race would be boiled down mm -hmm. to the 2016 primary is one of the most foolish assessments in media that I've ever seen. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to say, absolutely not. Let's have a real conversation about the budget. Let's have a real conversation about state parties needing to change the way they interact with the public. Let's if, Cenk, if he wants to look at just the divide as being the soul of this race, then I think that's asinine and he has another thing coming. That sounds like a threat to Jenk. So what she said basically in the interview that you didn't see there is that she wanted to go on the Young Turks show to respond to Jenk, but they didn't get back to her and she thinks that's trifling. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to get on there. They're going to ask you hard questions. You're going to get offended. You're going to dodge them and not answer the questions. Like, I don't get what that would prove. I'd love to see you on the Young Turks because I don't think Jen would allow you to get away with the bullshit you've been spewing at all of these DNC forums in the debate. Uh, but let me break it down for you, Jimu, because you are clearly uninformed. The DNC chair race isn't something that can potentially or hypothetically divide us. We're already divided. That's done. The DNC divided us. Hillary Clinton divided the Democratic Party. You simply ignoring it and pivoting to Donald Trump won't convince the millions of Democratic voters that the DNC fucked over to come back to the party. It's not going to happen. We're asking you about the unfair primary and we're making it a central issue because we don't trust the DNC. We're suing the DNC and it's incumbent on the next DNC chair to convince us that what happened in 2016 which was an abomination, that's never, ever going to happen again. But you are not willing to do that. You want to pretend like we're not divided. 
too late. We're divided. And I don't want unity until you actually pull your head out of your own ass and acknowledge what the DNC did. But you're giving us every indication that you don't want to acknowledge what the DNC did because you're friends with Hillary Clinton. You were an advisor to Hillary Clinton in 2008, and you want to potentially do uh, to progressives in 2020 exactly what the DNC did to Bernie Sanders in 2016. I don't trust you. And think about this. Why are you even qualified? You're a Fox News contributor. What qualifies you to talk about organizing and getting out the vote? What qualifies you to be the next DNC chair if you're not even the chair yet and you've already pissed off a substantial portion of the Democratic base? Progressives. In progressive circles, we are very terrified about you because you are espousing a lot of bullshit and you are dodging questions. You're acting just like Donna Brazil and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and other Democratic Party operatives that we don't trust. So why should we have you be the DNC chair if you're already proving to us that you're not qualified or capable of talking to progressives? It's absurd. Jammu Green might be the only person who's worse than Tom Perez, an establishment chill. So I'm sorry, but the fact that you already pissed off progressives shows that you're not qualified. You don't want to acknowledge the divide. That divide is going to continue to grow. If you don't acknowledge it, if the DNC doesn't apologize for it, we won't get party unity and we're not going to get party unity. Let's face it. What's going to happen is justice Democrats are going to primary the asses of every corporatist centrist Democrat and we're taking over the party. So it doesn't even matter who wins at this point. You know, it's probably going to be Tom Perez. Uh, but just know this, Jimmu, the DNC... Uh, you will be powerless and we will resist you if you try to do to progressives what the DNC did in the past. So, you know, you're embarrassing yourself here. You really are. Bernie Sanders recently penned an article for In These Times titled How Corporate Media Threatens Our Democracy with the subtitle This is a Crisis We Can No Longer Ignore. And in this article, he does a phenomenal job at explaining how corporate-controlled media threatens democracy because it prioritizes what the corporations want as opposed to what people actually want and need to see and get informed about. So uh, I couldn't not share this. So he states, media shapes our very lives. It tells us what products we need to buy and by the quantity and nature of coverage, what is important and what is unimportant. Media informs us as to the scope of what is realistic and possible. When we see constant coverage of murders and brutality on television, Corporate media is telling us that crime and violence are important issues that we should be concerned about. Media is not just about what is covered and how, it is about what is not covered, and those decisions of what is and is not covered are not made in the heavens. They are made by human beings who often have major conflicts of interest. As a general rule of thumb, the more important the issue is to large numbers of working people, the less interesting it is to corporate media. The less significant it is to ordinary people, the more attention the media pays. Further, issues being pushed by the top 1% get a lot of attention. Issues advocated by representatives of working families? Not so much. For the corporate media, the real issues facing the American people poverty, the decline of the middle class, income and wealth inequality, trade, healthcare, climate change, etc., are fairly irrelevant. For them, politics is largely represented as entertainment. The quote, politics of entertainment approach works very well for someone like Donald Trump, an experienced entertainer. That kind of media approach didn't work so well for a campaign like ours, which was determined to focus on the real problems facing our country and what the solutions might be. For the corporate media, name-calling and personal 
personal attacks are easy to cover and what it prefers to cover? Why is it that the mainstream media sees politics as entertainment and largely ignores the major crises facing our country? The answer lies in the fact that corporate media is owned by, well, large multinational corporations. These powerful corporations also have an agenda, and it would be naive not to believe that their views and needs impact coverage of issues important to them. Have you seen any specials lately as to why we pay the highest prices in the world for our prescription drugs, or why we're the only major country on earth not to have a national healthcare program? That may have something to do with the hundreds of millions of dollars each year that drug companies and insurance companies spend on advertising. And let us not also forget that the leading personalities we see on television are themselves, in most cases, multi-millionaires with very generous contracts. That does not make them evil or bad people. It just makes them very wealthy corporate employees who bring to their jobs the perspective that very wealthy corporate employees bring. In 1983, the largest 50 corporations controlled 90% of the media. Today, Today, as a result of massive mergers and takeovers, six corporations control 90% of what we see, hear, and read. Those six corporations are Comcast, News Corp, Disney, Viacom, Time Warner, and CBS. In 2010, the total revenue of these six corporations was $275 billion. In a recent article in Forbes magazine discussing media ownership, the headline appropriately read, These 15 billionaires own America's news media companies. No sane person denies that the media plays an enormously important role in shaping public consciousness and determining political outcomes. The current media situation is a very serious threat to our democracy. The very first amendment to our constitution guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press, the right of the people to express their points of view from the rooftops and to allow themselves to be heard. That is something I passionately believe in. Unfortunately, as A.J. Leibling wrote back in 1960, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one, and the people who own the press, radio and television stations, and book publishing and movie companies are becoming fewer and fewer with more and more power. This is a crisis that can no longer be ignored. And what he's saying here is really important because it's not just his opinion. This is backed up with political science studies uh, that illustrate the effect that media has on our brains. So numerous political science studies show that the media has the ability to prime people and get them to think about issues without actually mentioning issues. It has the ability to raise the salience of issues that we think are important. So if they think that terrorism, for example, is more important, they can get us to believe that it is in fact more important. And this is scary because we shouldn't have billionaires and multinational corporations influencing us. The media is supposed to be a check on government power. It's supposed to be basically the fourth branch of government. It's supposed to keep us informed about the actions of our government. But unfortunately, what the media does is it controls the narrative in the country. It, it controls political discourse. And that discourse, like Bernie Sanders rightfully points out, is often controlled by the wealthiest interests in the country. And it's frustrating because we saw how the media had a really harmful impact in the 2016 election. They basically had a media blackout on Bernie Sanders, and multiple political science studies have proven that if a media organization and if media just collectively wants to kill off the campaign of a candidate, all they have to do is not cover them. They don't have to smear them, even though they did try to smear Bernie Sanders. All they have to do is just not cover a candidate, and that campaign will die. And since they covered Donald Trump relentlessly and repeatedly, well, that elevated Donald Trump. That legitimized Donald Trump and made the American people think that this buffoon was someone 
who was a viable presidential candidate. So they took someone who was unqualified and non-viable and they made him viable. They legitimized him. Uh, and that was that was a disaster. So I think that what Bernie Sanders is saying here is incredibly important. And I'm glad that he's speaking out. We need to speak out about corporate controlled media. And look, even though it's the case that corporate controlled media uh, it, it's good for people like me, like the Humanist Report and Secular Talk and the Young Turks, because it's elevating us. People are looking for alternatives. But at the same time, though, I'm more concerned about what's good for the country, because if we actually have a mainstream media that does its job and calls out government officials when they're lying brazenly in front of our eyes, if they actually talk about issues that are important that would inform us, then I think that's a win for everyone. We probably wouldn't be in the political situation that we're in. You know, in some... This is a great article. I would encourage you to read the whole thing. I couldn't share all of it because it's really long, uh, but I'll put a link in the description box uh, because it, it's fantastic. Kudos to Bernie for calling out the corporate media and really explaining in a concise way the harm that they're doing. So as of late, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard has been on fire. And even though I do disagree with her on a number of issues, she's one of the few people in Congress that's demonstrated that she actually gives a damn about the American people. So she recently called for the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. Representative Tulsi Gabbard joined 26 members of Congress in introducing the Return to Prudent Banking Act today. The bipartisan legislation endorsed by Public Citizen and the AFL-CIO would reinstate important consumer protection protections put in place after the Great Depression and require separation between commercial and investment banking. From the Great Depression through the turn of the 21st century, Glass-Steagall helped keep our economy safe. Repealing it allowed too-big-to-fail banks to gamble with the savings and livelihoods of the American people with devastating, irrevocable consequences. Hawaii, along with communities across the country, paid the price in 2008 with the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Today, the banks that were too big to fail in 2008 are even bigger and more powerful now. We must reinstate Glass-Steagall and create a financial system that works for every American, not just Wall Street banks, said Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Now, to give you some background, in 1933, the Banking Act, also known as the Glass-Steagall Act, passed amid an atmosphere of chaos and uncertainty to address banking failures of the Great Depression. The goal of its lead co-sponsors, Representative Henry Steagall and Senator Carter Glass, was to separate commercial and investment banking and restore confidence in the American banking system. In 1999, Congress repealed the Glass-Steagall Act and removed the barriers between investment banking and traditional depository banks. This action gave financial institutions and investment firms access to the deposits of the American consumer, which then were used to gamble on the Wall Street casino. This misguided deregulation allowed the creation of giant financial supermarkets that could own investment banks commercial banks and insurance firms, and created companies too big and intertwined to fail. This lack of regulation also allowed Wall Street to leverage their debt past sustainable ratios using consumer mutual funds and the pension accounts of American workers as collateral. And as was stated in the press release, this was a piece of legislation that was enacted during the Great Depression, and it was a piece of New Deal legislation. Uh, and do you want to know who repealed this? The president that signed the repeal of Glass-Steagall was President Bill Clinton in 1999. So it's frustrating that Democrats are not on board with this. Only 26 people are getting behind Tulsi Gabbard. It should be 100% 
percent of Democrats in Congress that are getting behind this initiative because this is a no brainer to me. And here's what we can do just individually. If you are putting your money in the bank accounts of these really large banks that like to gamble with your money, you can take a stand. If you pull your money out and put it into a credit union, then what you do is you give a big middle finger to all of these big banks and you support your local community. And it also benefits you because for me, I had a bank account with JP Morgan Chase and I pulled out because they were charging me these arbitrary monthly fees and you already have my money. You shouldn't be charging me any fees. So I put my money in a, in a credit union uh, and now I'm saving. I, I'm actually making money, you know, because they have benefits. It, it helps the community. They give me loans. Uh, they offer loans for if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy a car. Uh, and they give you, uh, you know, reverse fees. For example, I get a reverse fee every month if I keep a certain amount of money uh, deposited in my bank account. So it's just, it benefits you. It benefits uh, your community. And it tells these big banks that we're done with their bullshit. These too big to fail banks are ruining the economy. They already crashed the economy in 2008 and we don't want them to do it again. So when it comes to what Tulsi Gabbard is proposing here, I think it's a no brainer. And I'm really glad that she's standing up for all of these highly popular progressive policies that shouldn't even be debatable. The Democratic Party should all just be in favor of reinstating Glass-Steagall. But the fact that we have to fight with Democrats like Hillary Clinton... I mean, we fought with her to agree to reinstate Glass-Steagall, and she, she never conceded on this point. She never conceded on this point. So Democrats need to take a stand. And the fact that only 26 people are behind Tulsi Gabbard, it shows that we have to take over Congress. We have to take over the Democratic Party with Justice Democrats, because I want that to be 100% of Democrats. And I also want it to be 100% of Republicans, because this is a no-brainer. So Bernie Sanders' progressive organization, Our Revolution, launched an initiative that I think every progressive in the country should get behind. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to draft Nina Turner to run for governor in Ohio and take that job from John Kasich. So they recently announced an event to launch this initiative, and this is what they said. Ohio Revolution is formally calling upon Nina Turner to run for governor in 2018. She is our only hope in taking back the governor's office. Nina Turner knows what it means to work hard. Born in the oldest of seven children in Cleveland, Ohio, Nina accepted her first job at the age of 14 to help support her family and siblings. Nina's work ethic, empathy, and commitment to serving others stem largely from her humble beginnings in Cleveland, Ohio, as the oldest of seven children. Nina has shared her inspirational story with hundreds of thousands of people across the nation, invigorating and empowering individuals to advocate for positive social and economic agendas by delivering succinct and sophisticated messages. Nina worked her way through school, earning her Associate of Arts degree from Cuyahoga Community College and her Bachelor and Master of Arts degrees from Cleveland State University. In 2013, Nina received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Wilberforce University. Nina Turner always knew she wanted to be a voice for those less fortunate, and throughout her career in public service as an activist, educator, mentor, and policymaker, she has made it her mission to empower individuals, institutions, Institutions and communities to achieve their greatest greatness. Nina's passionate advocacy has earned her regular appearances on national television and radio programs and accolades from numerous national organizations. Nina is currently a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College and the chair of political engagement at the Ohio Democratic Party. Uh, yes, yeah, so I am 100% on board. I don't even think I have to say that. So if you want to know how you can help draft Nina Turner, you can visit the link down below in the description box uh, and you can attend an event 
event in Ohio uh, that will launch this new initiative. Now, look, Nina Turner is someone who's very important in American politics because I want her to do everything she can to boost her national profile. And if she runs for governor, this will open the door wide open for her to someday make a presidential run. And the thought of Nina Turner becoming the president one day, uh, it's almost unfathomable. Uh, it's so awesome. Like, I can't even picture it. It's, it's just like, it's too good to be true, but it's possible. She has the potential and she has the policies that would galvanize the nation. So I want Nina Turner to have a really big say in American politics. And if she takes back the governorship from a Republican like John Kasich, who claims to be a moderate, but really just a union buster, uh, then I think that that's a huge step in the right direction for progressives. And her victory in Ohio could be huge for the party. And she's someone who's been a relentless advocate for the policies of Bernie Sanders. She believes that healthcare is a right. She believes that education is a right. And the DNC tried to shut her out at the Democratic National Convention because she was too fierce in her advocacy for Bernie Sanders. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that she critiqued Hillary Clinton and called her out. Nina Turner is as principled as you could possibly be in Washington. There's something about Nina Turner uh, that is really promising that gives me hope for the future of the country. And I have no doubt that she's going to go on to do great things, but this is a really, really huge start. So let's do it. Let's draft Nina Turner. Let's get her to run for a governor in Ohio. You know, it's coming up next year, 2018. I think that she can throw John Kasich out on his ass. And this isn't just about Ohio politics. She would have the weight of the progressive community around the country and even internationally behind her. So we'll do for you, Nina, what we did for Bernie. We will boost you. We will uh, help you raise money with grassroots contributions and you will win. So look, let's do it. Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in. And I know I say this every single week, but really, I mean, thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs> if you're a subscriber, if you click like on that video, you're doing you're doing us a huge solid. If you're sharing the videos, you're getting out the word uh, about progressive issues that I think are really important. And when most people see this, we will be at 90,000 subscribers. We are well on our way to 100,000. I mean, the countdown begins. That's remarkable. That's honestly, like, I can't even articulate into words how crazy that is. And it's not about me. It's not about, you know, the program itself. It's about the interest that people have in progressive policies. Uh, and it's inspiring. It really is inspiring. So thank you all so much. Um, I'll see you next week. Have a great day. <laughs>